Ted and Tara Wong tell the story of eating the finest meal they had ever had in their life at Haas and Betty Smith's house. Now, they met one another at church. That's a great place to meet. Ted and Haas had been in a men's ministry program together, and that's where the relationship began. Quickly, Ted had told Tara what it was like being around Haas. He had a larger-than-life personality. You can imagine with a name like Haas, you are going to have a larger-than-life personality. Betty and Tara met just standing out in the lobby of their church, and a friendship began to form, albeit a young one. So Haas and Betty invited them to come over for dinner. Everything they knew about the two of them, they were anticipating it with an air of excitement. And they were not even a little bit surprised when they were met in the driveway by Haas and Betty with the huge smiles on their faces and welcoming handshakes. The evening was getting off to a great start. Ted and Tara stood in the driveway staring at a house that really went beyond their comprehension. They had never been in anything like this. Big circle drive led up to a huge entryway. and Haas and Betty graciously invited the Wongs to come on into the house. And so the four of them walked into a foyer that you could put the entire Wong house in. It was pretty impressive and a little bit daunting. They sat down and shared a meal of steak and lobster with one another. Ted said he had never had a meal like that. When it was over and he had dipped all of the lobster into the butter dish, he really thought for a minute that he would like to lick the butter out. That's how good it was. And the meat was beyond anything that he had ever had as well. They served the entire meal on china and poured the water into crystal, and that was outside of Ted and Tara's wheelhouse also. As soon as the meal was over... The Smiths invited the Wongs to join them, sitting around the pool where their kids were at, so that they could just watch the kids swim. Of course, they went out there and pulled up the poolside chairs and enjoyed the evening. And then in this moment of surprise, Tara says that Betty came out carrying a tray with cheesecake on it, and every conceivable topping was on that tray. It was a cheesecake buffet. And they ate themselves into a sugar coma. It was really an unbelievable meal. So after the evening was over and Ted and Tara got in their car and headed home, they were talking about all of the events of the night and and found themselves anticipating the next opportunity that the Smiths might invite them over again. They waited for that invitation and waited and waited and waited and waited a little bit more. Never came. They didn't understand why they weren't invited back. They'd had such a great evening, and they knew that there was a strong connection between the Wong and Smith families. So they really were shocked, surprised, disappointed, all kinds of different emotions. One Sunday when they were standing in the lobby at the church, they got some insight into why that happened. The Smiths had been offended by the Wongs. The Wong spent a lot of time trying to figure out what had gone wrong, how they might have offended them. In fact, Betty walked over to where she had heard that rumor and asked the people that were talking, well, what in the world happened? What did we do? We can't remember anything at all that that went wrong with the evening. How did we offend Haas and Betty? Nobody would tell her. Ted 
started asking around a little bit as well. Of course, they never went up to Haas and Betty and asked them. They just stayed in the shadows talking to their rumor-spreading friends to see if they could figure out how they had hurt these new folks. Finally, one of the well-meaning couples just stepped up to the plate and told them, this is what happened. Haas and Betty invited you over for a fine meal. They expected you to return the favor, and you never invited them to come to your house. And they're hurt by it. They're offended by that. Well, Ted and Tara, driving home from church that Sunday after they'd gotten that information, actually went back over the course of all of their conversations where they had talked about inviting the Smiths over to their house and they had purposely decided not to for a couple of different reasons. Beginning with this, they were living in their starter home, one that they had purchased early on in their marriage and they had paid for it. And they are happy living in that house, but it paled in comparison to the Smith home. In fact, Ted would tell you that the six bedrooms and all of the matching bathrooms of the Smith house was so far beyond their two-bedroom, one-bath home that they would have been embarrassed to invite the Smiths over. They had four kids, the Wongs did, and all four of those kids shared that second bedroom. There was no swimming pool in the backyard. In fact, there really wasn't even much of a backyard. Their house was paid for, and they were comfortable. They'd found the way that they wanted to live in it, yet they didn't feel like they could invite the Smiths over. And then Tara would actually tell you that neither one of them, her or Ted, were that neither she nor Ted were good cooks. And after the meal that they had had at the Smith house, the Wongs knew that there was no way that they could keep up with that. In fact, she would say that a gourmet night in their home was when they put hot dogs in the SpaghettiOs. That's a good meal for them. And there certainly wouldn't be a cheesecake buffet the things that they might serve for dessert would be the cookies that were on sale at the grocery store that week. So they didn't feel like they could invite them over, and that's why they didn't. Yet they had looked forward, anticipated. They had dreamed of going back over to the Smith home. But in their offense, that never happened. Now it would be interesting for us to sit down and debate that whole story with one another just to try and determine which couple was wrong. Or were they both wrong? We might say that the Wongs were wrong from the outset because at no point in their visit with the Smith family did the Smiths ever lord what they had over the Wongs. At no point did they ever presuppose that they were better than the Wongs. The Smiths never made it uncomfortable at all. So maybe, just maybe, the Wongs were wrong for having not invited them to come over. But maybe the Smiths were wrong, and we could debate this to quite an end as well, for believing that the Wongs had to return the favor of having come to their house. There are a lot of people that do that type of thing. If I do this for you, then you have to do this for me. There is a philosophical term that gets attached to that. It is called the debtor's ethic. If I do something for you, then you return that for me. The debtor's ethic, which within philosophy permeates all kinds of different things, whether that is the sharing of a meal or whether that is the physical favors that we might do for those that we love and care for. So maybe, just maybe, when we get to the end of that conversation, we would determine that, yes, the Wongs were wrong because they saw the Smiths differently than they really were, but at the end of the day, it was the Smiths 
who were wrong in their offense because they had applied the debtor's ethic to the Wong's and to their own gift. If I do this for you, then you have to do this for me. Now, here's the problem with the debtor's ethic. It destroys relationships in this life. And when we try to apply it to our relationship with God, we will, if not destroy our relationship with God, certainly hinder it. And there are a lot of people that do that very thing. They try to apply the debtor's ethic to God. If God did this for me, then I have to do that for him. If God does this for me, then I need to figure out how to repay him. The problem with the debtor's ethic in regard to our relationship with God is that it will always fail. It will always fail. One of the psalmists figured that out. And in fact, they found a way around the debtor's ethic with the Lord. Let me show it to you. It's found in the 116th Psalm. Psalm 116, verse 12. Psalm 116, verse 12. The psalmist writes, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Now that's just the answer to the whole debtor's ethic right there. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? In modern language, we might say that like this. How in the world could I ever pay back God? What can I give God that will match what he has done for me? That's exactly what the psalmist is saying. Now follow him into the next verse. He says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. I love the conclusion that he comes to so quickly. Rather than trying to repay God, rather than trying to render to God what he has done for me, I will simply lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. So the psalmist says two things are at play here. I will lift up the cup of salvation, which means, very simply, and this can be a little bit confusing, so hang with me through this. I have drank everything within that cup of salvation or the cup of grace. Now I will lift it back up to the Lord in hopes that he will fill it back up, not with salvation, but with a new grace. And I will drink that grace and I will lift it before the Lord again and trust that God will fill it up with a new grace. And I will drink from that cup and then I will lift it before the Lord again, trusting that God will fill it up again. And I will fulfill my vows. I will be obedient before the Lord. That's the answer to the debtor's ethic with God. Yet in modern Christianity, this is what we do. We apply the debtor's ethic to our relationship with God, and we say, well, because God saved me through his son, I'll go to church on Sunday mornings because I owe him. I'll find a ministry that I could serve in because, well, I need to pay God back for what he has done for me. We even apply it to our giving. I will tithe because God has given me so much, I'll just give him back a portion of what he has given to me. When we apply the debtor's ethic like that, we are robbing ourselves of the relationship that God wants with us. We are robbing ourselves of the depth that God wants with us. 
Rather than believing that we can pay God back, we have to get to a place where we say the Lord wants a relationship with us where it isn't a debtor's ethic relationship, but rather a growing, loving relationship where God will continue to reveal himself to us as we continue to lift up the cup of salvation before him. That's the antidote to the debtor's ethic, but it takes people a long time to get there. It really does. And it shouldn't be that way. But for whatever reason, it is. I might offer to you that the only debt that we owe the Lord is a love relationship. And I base that on this passage from 1 John chapter 4, if you want to turn there with me. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is so, also are we in his world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now listen, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now let's go back to verse 19, listen one more time. We love because he first loved us. That is the only debtor's ethic verse you will find in the Bible. We love not only God, but everyone else because God first loved us. Now I might illustrate that this way. In the fall of 1987, I met Tina. Very first time I met her. Now she was standing across the parking lot when I saw her for the first time and it took me a few days and a few tries to get to where I actually got to meet her, to say hello, to talk to her, to hear her voice. And it didn't take long after that when I knew that I wanted to take her out on a date. Now I was reading from that playbook before she was. So it took me a little while to get her on board and to convince her that that's what needed to happen. Now, when I say it took a while to get her on board, what I really mean is it took me a while to get brave enough to ask. And so in December of 1987, I asked her to go out on a date with me, and she said, yes. That was one of the greatest moments of my life. She said, yes. And she said, yes, several times after that. And, and today, she is still saying yes. And every time she does, it absolutely amazes me. She was gone to Kansas a few weeks ago, and, and we had 
had our anniversary, our 29th anniversary in August, and it came and went, and we were busy and didn't have an opportunity to, to celebrate that. And so when she was gone to Kansas, I said, hey, I've made some reservations for actually the next couple of nights. We'll leave after church today, and we are headed out to celebrate our anniversary. And she was on the phone with me when I was telling her that, and she said yes. And it made my heart do this flip because she said yes. When I call her and say, hey, you want to go to dinner with me or you want to meet me for lunch or whatever the case might be, every time she says yes to me, it does something deep within my heart, within my core. Well, that's the exact same thing with God. We love him because he said yes to us. We don't love him and try to pay him back because of what he has done for us. We simply love him because he said yes. And that's the love relationship. We don't owe God a debt. We owe God our lives. And that's the way it works. Now, here's the problem with the debtor's ethic as it is applied to God. It will fail every time. The debtor's ethic will fail every time. Listen to me on this. Don't, don't make any mistake about it. You will never, ever be able to pay God back for what he has done for you. Now, if you don't believe me, believe the Bible. The Bible speaks to this very issue. We're going to go to the book of Romans together. Romans chapter 11, verse 34. Romans chapter 11, verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The Apostle Paul boiled it all down to this. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? If you were to count up your blessings, the things that the Lord has done for you, if you were to put all of those on a tally sheet and then throw this challenge down, I'm going to repay God for everything that he has done for me, you will not make it past number one because God gave you life. How are you going to repay someone for giving you life? And then as you make your way through all of that list, God gave you the gift of his son. He died for you. How are you physically going to repay him for that? That's what the Apostle Paul wants us to know. You can't. It's impossible. And even if you could, the second problem with the debtor's ethic applied to God is that you will turn your relationship with God into a business transaction, thus robbing grace of its significance, thus stealing from the gift, thus shrinking all that the Lord has done for you. Again, I don't want you to trust me on that. I want you to trust the Bible. Still in the book of Romans, we're going to go to chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Do you want a business transaction with the Lord? If you are trying to work your way into God's favor, that's all it is. It's a business transaction. And you're going to lose every time. Now think of it like this. If you were looking to buy a new piece of furniture and 
you went online to Craigslist and you just happened to be surfing around in Seattle thinking that that's where you're going to find this piece of furniture that you're going to bring into your house and you find that Bill Gates is having a yard sale and he's got some furniture that he is clearing out of his house and he's got it all on Craigslist and you find the piece that you're looking for so you try to open up negotiations with Bill Gates to see if you can talk him down just a little bit because you know that Bill's probably hurting for money and that's why he's having this yard sale. So you're just trying to get into a negotiation with him. How well do you think that's going to go? Bill doesn't need your money, therefore he's not negotiating. Try the same thing with Warren Buffett in Nebraska. Go on Nebraska's Craigslist and see if you can find Warren Buffett cleaning things out and then get into a negotiation argument with him. He doesn't need your money. Which, by the way, I went on Seattle Craigslist this week just to see if Bill Gates popped up at all. I couldn't find him. And I, I didn't know where to look for Warren Buffett in Nebraska, so I didn't go that way. But I just thought it'd be interesting to see if Bill Gates was on there. I didn't find a thing. When we try to negotiate with the Lord, when we try to apply this ethic, we forget that we are dealing with the creator of the universe. Everything is held together by him. You don't have anything to offer him except your life. So the debtor's ethic falls apart when we try to work our way into his favor. And this is the other problem with it. First off, we know that it will fail. Secondly, we know that if it worked, it was nothing but a business transaction. But here's the third problem with the debtor's ethic with God. It only looks backwards. It fails to look forward to the future grace that we all need. When we are trying to liquidate a debt and get the red out of our ledger with the Lord, we are solely looking backwards. And when we are only looking backwards, we are not moving forward with God. We are not looking forward with any expectation from Him. All we're doing is trying to pay off what He has already done for us. And what a shame that is. Because you see, gratitude looks through the rearview mirror while faith looks through the windshield. And as faith is moving us forward, it is moving us forward into the place where we can say, I will lift up the cup of salvation and trust that God will fill it again and again and again with the grace that I need to make it through life. God does it for us over and over and over again. And that does something within us. Let me show it to you. When we choose not to live in a spirit of gratitude, but rather a spirit of faith, and we bring all of that together within the relationship that God wants for us and with us, we get to experience this. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Hebrews 11, verse 1. The most popular verse in all of the Bible about faith. The writer of Hebrews says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, Here's the cool thing. When faith really takes hold in our life, it brings a hopefulness. When faith really takes hold within us, hope follows. I like the way John Piper says this. He says, gratitude looks backward, faith looks forward, and when faith looks forward, it always creates a hopefulness of future grace. That's it. God, what do you have in store for me next? Lord, where are you leading me next? I'm going to hold up this cup of salvation until it is filled. When we arrive at that place and that type of hopefulness exists in us, some pretty cool things happen. 
first and foremost, we begin to understand who we are in Christ. We are no longer a person that sits on the fringe of a relationship with Him, but we are His child, firmly in relationship with Him, and all of His love is being poured out on us, and we become the person that He wants us to be. You don't have to turn with me, but listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this very thing. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 9. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied the most. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came into death, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. You become a child of God. In Jesus, you become a child of God. And because of that, the debt that you have owed the Lord has been taken care of. It has been wiped out. And now I can begin to live as an heir with the hopefulness of everything between now and the moment that I stand in his presence. That's what it does for me. So I just get to ask the Lord to fill up the cup. Lord, fill up the cup. I will hold it before you. Fill it up. And I will fulfill my vows, Lord. I will fulfill my vows. That's what happens within us. So once we have moved past the debtor's ethic, it leads us to what I would refer to as the gratitude ethic with God, which means I will discover a way to let the Lord know how much I value this relationship. The gratitude ethic is laid out for us in the 12th chapter of Romans. Why don't you go there with me? Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Again, this is written by the Apostle Paul. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing, but that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I have studied that verse for years and years and years from the New International Version. I just read it for you from the English Standard Version. The New International Version says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord, for this is your spiritual act of worship. And that sets the stage for everything else that will be listed out in Romans chapter 12. And we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at all of those things as they apply to the gratitude ethic. But before we can get there, we have to look at the two most important words in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The first one is the word therefore in the New International Version as well as the English Standard. They just happen to be switched in order. Now the word therefore ties us back to everything that Paul was teaching in chapter 11. And here it is in a nutshell. Paul is teaching in chapter 11 that God has saved not only the Jews through his son Jesus, but he has also saved the Gentiles. The terminology in Romans chapter 11 is this. As Gentiles, we have been grafted onto the branch. 
We have been adopted as his children. We have been welcomed in. Even though we are not natural born children of God like the Jews, we have been welcomed into the family of God. That's the therefore. You are a child of God by the grace of God through his son Jesus Christ. That's the therefore. So that sets the stage for this second very important word when Paul says, I appeal in the English Standard Version, or I urge, I urge you. Now I want to use the word urge because I think it has a greater power than the word appeal. Think about what urge really means. Just let that sink in for a second. Webster would define it this way, to try to persuade someone to do something persistently and emphatically to try to persuade someone to do something persistently and emphatically i would offer that we could actually use the word beg when we use the word urge therefore because of what god did for you i beg you paul says movies it's always an interesting thing to me when you see someone begging another person for something. It's captured pretty well on film. They get down on their knees and they fold their hands and they put this look on their face that says, nothing is more important to me than this right here, right now. I need this from you. I beg you. Maybe you have been at that place in life where you have been on your knees before somebody with your hands folded and your head lowered and you have begged them to do something. That is the exact same illustration of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I beg you, Paul says, because of what you have received in Christ, because of what you have now with God, I beg you, I urge you, he goes on to say, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to offer everything that you have. Because you're not going to pay God back any other way. So offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord, and it will become your spiritual act of worship. You're not going to buy your way into God's favor. You're not going to work your way into God's favor. All you can do is offer your body as a living sacrifice. Here I am, Lord, everything I have, everything I am, everything around me, I give to you, God, Thank you for what you have done for me. That's the gratitude ethic. That's the love relationship. Because you said yes to me, Lord, I'm saying yes to you over and over and over and over and over and over and over again for as long as I have on this earth and beyond. That's responding to the urging, the begging that the Bible would put before us as the children of God. Stop trying to buy your favor with the Lord. Stop trying to earn your favor with the Lord. You will fail every time. Offer yourself before the Lord in the gratitude ethic that you might really have relationship with him. And here's what you'll find. When the gratitude ethic really takes over, when the gratitude ethic becomes a part of who you are, it will destroy pride and self-sufficiency. The gratitude ethic destroys those you will no longer think about how you have done anything in your life. You will think about how God has done it through you. And when it has destroyed pride and self-sufficiency, the next thing to disappear will be spiritual entitlement. Spiritual entitlement teaches us that because I do this, then God owes me that. Because I have been faithful, then the Lord better be faithful and give me more than I have given him. That's spiritual entitlement. It is no different 
than entitlements that we see all around us all the time. God owes me something. Well, here, let me boil this down for you. God gave you his son. I think he's pretty much in the lead. So he doesn't owe you anything. All you have to do is say, Lord, here is the cup of salvation. Fill it up again with the grace that I need to do whatever is necessary. And God will fill it back up. That's the way he does it. And when that spiritual entitlement is destroyed, when it is removed from your life, the good soil that is left will grow a sustaining relationship with God himself. And that's what it's all about. It begins in Christ. And then as we add all the other things, not to Christ, but to our relationship with God that Romans chapter 12 lists out for us, by the end of it, we will have discovered how to live a life of gratitude with the Lord. It's going to take us a few weeks to go through this. I hope you'll be with us as we do and keep the idea of the gratitude ethic always in your mind and get further and further away from the debtor's ethic and you'll be glad you did. I want you to stand with us. We're going to pray together. Father in heaven, Romans 12 has a lot to teach us. I pray that we'll open our hearts to receive it. Lord, that teaching begins with the therefore. Because without Jesus, we have nothing. Nothing. Even though the world might tell us we can have everything, the truth of the matter is, we have nothing. Whatever we might accumulate here, whatever we might accomplish here, dies here. What we find in you, Lord, lives forever. Because of that, I love that the Bible would urge us, beg us. The Apostle Paul would would say this is of the utmost importance, that we learn what it means to live in a love relationship with you. I pray that you'll guide us through this in the coming weeks. Father, I pray that you'll convict us where necessary, stretch us when needed. I pray, Father, that you'll, you'll take us deeper in our walk with you. No matter where we're at, I pray you'll take us deeper. For some, that means they'll begin a relationship with you. For others, it means they'll experience something that up to this point they've not experienced. Help us with that, Lord. Show us. Teach us. In Jesus' name we ask that. Amen.